1 Corinthians 12, we've been looking at the life that we live as believers in Jesus Christ in the Spirit. Last week we saw that the Spirit comes to bring unity to a world that has been torn apart by sin. Sin always brings conflict, but it is those who have the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ who have the possibility and the reality of living together in unity. And that's what the church is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant that gives us the Spirit on display every Sunday morning as the church gathers in unity. What else could produce that unity save God himself through his Spirit? The question we're looking at this morning is why the new covenant takes the shape that it does. We usually think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as producing individual saints, you and me, rescued from darkness and sin and now bound for heaven as individuals. And yet when we look at the, new, the Old Testament and the New Testament and how it develops the idea of God's new covenant, giving us the Spirit, we find out that in giving us the Spirit, God has not destined individual saints for heaven only. He has instead created a body that is destined for the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant does not merely produce saved people. It produces a saved body, the body of Christ, a body that consists of many members, but which nevertheless exists in unity. Why did God do it that way? Why did he, by the Spirit, create a body? What are we supposed to understand from that? And how are we to live this life in the Spirit, in the body of Christ? What does it mean to live in the Spirit if the Spirit's work is to unite us together into the body of Christ? We get an answer to that question in 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to spend a few minutes surveying the chapter and then focus our attention on verses 21 through 26 at the conclusion this morning. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. His content pertains to spiritual gifts, and yet the word gifts is not actually present in the underlying original language. Which means then that the chapter is not primarily about spiritual gifts, the Corinthians' question was deeper than just spiritual gifts. And let me show you what Paul's answer to their question is. They've asked him a question about spiritual. Spiritual what? That's what we want to find out. And as we look at the chapter, we find out what it was that they were asking and what it is that Paul is saying to them. First, let's notice that while the word gifts is not in that underlying original Greek text. The word spiritual is. Now concerning spiritual things, what does Paul have in mind? Anytime that you see the word spiritual in your Bible, you don't want to think about something that you can't quite get your hands on. You know, it's, it's not physical like the chairs, it's, it's spiritual. You don't want to think that when you see the word spiritual in your Bible. Instead, you want to think about something that is related to God's Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we see in this chapter. Paul speaks in this chapter, answering a question about spiritual things. He speaks about the Holy Spirit 12 times. His answer shows that these spiritual things that the Corinthians have asked about 
that they have asked him about pertain to deeper questions about the Spirit of God. You won't understand the answer to their question about spiritual things if you don't understand that the answer has everything to do with the Spirit of God. So what was their question about the Spirit of God and spiritual matters? Well, let's begin with verses 1 through 3 and let's read them. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, Now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul contrasts two ways of life in these verses. Look at verse 2. He speaks about when you were pagans, when you were Gentiles. And he speaks in verse 3 now about now that you are in the Spirit and speaking in the Spirit. Previously, the Corinthians were pagans. That's what he says in verse 2. In that era of their lives, they were led astray to mute idols. And notice the last phrase of verse 2. They were led astray however you were led. Paul says that no matter how they were led, whatever influence pushed them along, the destination was always the same. They were led astray. Paul says that no matter how they were led, they always arrived at idolatry. And that idolatry could have taken the shape of physical statues or figures. And that's the way that a lot of the world is today, bowing down before physical statues. That idolatry could have taken the shape of worshipping the figure that stares back at you from the mirror in the mornings. Worship of self. But in either case, no matter what influences or inclinations were driving the Corinthian believers forwards before they found Christ, every influence led them astray to idolatry. There have been no pagans in the history of the world who have ever arrived at the truth on their own. Every influence leads them astray. None propel men towards the truth. And that's Paul's point in verse 2. Now, having laid that foundation, Paul stands upon that foundation to make what should be then a very obvious point to us. Notice verse 3. Therefore, in light of what he's just said, here comes the conclusion. Building on that foundation, Paul says, I want you to know that no one calls Jesus Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If no pagan arrives at worship of the true God, regardless of how he's led, then there's nothing in us that will bring us to the right end. We will always be led astray. Every influence in world history has always led men astray. So why do some men change course and come to worship the true God and confess that his son is Lord? The Spirit of God is the answer to that question. The Spirit of God reorients certain men and women so that they confess Jesus as Lord. And His work is the only influence that will bring men to confess that Jesus is Lord. And Paul makes that statement negatively and positively in verse 3. I want you to understand, he says, that no one 
speaking in the Spirit, ever calls Jesus accursed. That would be the wrong destination to arrive at. The Spirit of God never leads a man to the wrong destination. On the other side, no one says that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit of God goes to work in him. In other words, the Spirit of God always brings men to the right destination wherever he goes to work. Wherever he works, this is where people come out at the right destination. His work never fails to bring men to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. This confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul tells us, is the turning point from pagan idolatry to salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How does a man come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Evidently, confessing that with his mouth goes right along with belief in the heart. It's not merely confessing words. Jesus Christ is Lord, I say that with my mouth. That confession comes out of a heart of belief, out of a heart of genuine faith. And Paul, James tells us that faith always works, which means then that to confess Jesus as Lord out of a heart of faith that always produces works, that confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is always accompanied by actual acts and words and deeds that show that Jesus Christ is actually Lord. Works give evidence of the faith that the Spirit has produced in us. The Spirit leads a man to bow daily to Jesus Christ as Lord in his thoughts and words and deeds and actions, decisions. And all of these facts then bring Paul to this point that he's making in these first three verses. If it is the Spirit of God who infallibly leads men to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if he's the one who turns men from pagan idolatry to embrace Jesus Christ and to worship God the Father who raised him from the dead, then that confession is evidence of the Spirit's work. The Corinthians have a question about spiritual things, spirituality. They want to know about spiritual matters. And Paul says, first of all, you've got to understand that the infallible mark of the Spirit's work the way that you would know that he's present in the life of any individual is when that person confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. That's Paul's point in these first three verses. His next section in the chapter calls our attention to the variety of gifts in the body of Christ. And this might seem like a complete change of topic, but it's not. Look with me at verse 4. He says, Now, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered, all these gifts that he's been speaking about are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit behind them all. All of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions them to each one individually as he wills. The word apportions in verse 11 is from the same family of words as varieties in verse 4. Why are there varieties of gifts? Answer, the Spirit of God. Varieties of gifts, 
but they all come from the same Spirit. And that gives us the main idea of these verses, verses 4 through 11. Amidst the variety of gifts, the Spirit is the driving force behind them all. They are distributed as He wills, verse 11. Though there are many gifts, all of them come from the same Spirit. What's that got to do with verses 1 through 3? The Corinthians were asking about matters of spirituality. And Paul says, every gift is a manifestation of the same Spirit. Connecting this with the previous section, verses 1 through 3, it seems that the Corinthians were considering one particular gift to be the authentic mark of spirituality. And from chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, we know that this gift was speaking in tongues. The Corinthians had picked up speaking in tongues and they had raised it up and elevated it as the authentic mark of genuine spirituality. If you hadn't spoken in tongues, they said, you weren't a genuinely spiritual person. You didn't have the Holy Spirit until you had spoken in tongues. Truly, spiritual people, people who possessed the Spirit of God, spoke in tongues, they reasoned. But Paul takes that and turns that completely on its head. He says that the Spirit does not give one gift, he gives a variety of gifts. He's behind tongues and apostleship. No one considers the gift of apostle to be the defining mark of the Spirit's presence. If you're not an apostle, you don't have the Spirit of God. So why should we consider that if you haven't spoken in tongues, you don't have the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God is behind all of the gifts, is Paul's point. One should not pursue speaking in tongues to show himself to be a truly spiritual person. And those who have never spoken in tongues are not any less possessors of God's Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit distributes the gifts as He wills, according to His own good pleasure. Instead of a particular gift that shows that a person is a spiritual person, Paul says the mark of truly spiritual people is that they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And their life manifests that that confession is genuine. And so the Corinthians, it seems, were asking about what shows that a man is a genuinely spiritual person, that he possesses within him the Spirit of God? How would you know? if a person has the Spirit of God? And Paul's answer is, do they confess Jesus Christ as Lord? But the question that we've got to ask ourselves is this, why is this such a big deal to the Corinthians? To know who possesses the Spirit of God. It seems this was an important question to them because possessing God's Holy Spirit is how one becomes a member of the body of Christ. So we want to know who gets to be part of the body of Christ. Who does? All those who possess the Spirit. How would we know who possesses the Spirit? The Corinthians say, well, you've got to speak in tongues, and then we know. And Paul says that can't be because the Spirit's behind all the gifts. Paul says the way you would know if someone possesses the Spirit is do they confess Jesus Christ as Lord? Paul says that that is the infallible evidence of the Spirit's work of an individual. 
and to further undo this false understanding of spirituality that the Corinthians had. Paul employs now a metaphor, an, an analogy, a comparison between the human body and the body of Christ to make his point. Let's look at this in verses 12 through 31. The next section of the chapter stretches from verses 12, through 31, 12 to 31, pretty much all the way to the end of the chapter. The section opens with two verses that set up this comparison for us. All right, look at verses 12 and 13. Just as the body is one, and then verse, the end of verse 12, so it is with Christ. Paul is comparing the human body and the body of Christ. The human body, he says in verse 12, is one. It's a unity, and yet it has many members. And he says at the end of the verse, so also is Christ. In one spirit, we were all, many of us, baptized into one body. Human body, single body, many members. Body of Christ, single body, but we all are baptized into it, many members. Paul tells us here that Christ's work is to plunge each of his followers into the Spirit, to be baptized in the Spirit. Think of a cup being plunged into the water and pulled out again. What's true of the cup now? It's full of the water. When Christ baptizes us in the Spirit, we come out full of the Holy Spirit. There is one Spirit. If we all possess the one Spirit, now we are many who are one body in Christ Jesus. Christ baptizes all of his followers in one spirit and coming to possess him then by that baptism, we are transferred from outside the body. Now we are inside the body because we possess the spirit. Possessing the spirit then in common means we are united into one body, the body of Christ. And the process by which that happens is by Christ's work to give us the spirit that he calls here being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Spirit baptism is how we cross the line from not a member of the body of Christ to now a member of the body of Christ. And Paul develops this analogy now between the human body and the body of Christ. He develops that analogy in verses 14 through 26. And then look at verse 27 through 31. He takes that analogy, verses 14 through 26 are basically about human bodies. In fact, the doctor could learn a lot about the human body from these verses. Or maybe a doctor would understand these verses better than the rest of us. But then verse 27 through 31, he comes back and tells us what that means for us in the body of Christ. So let's read verses 14 through 26. For the body... That's the human body. You've got one this morning. The body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, 
where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think lesser honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. These verses speak to us about God's work to put the human body together. And in the comparison, the way that God has created the human body is the same way that he has created the body of Christ. The analogy of the human body shows that speaking in tongues is not the authentic test of genuine spirituality. Paul shows this by looking at how the human body has been constructed and how the Spirit of God has constructed the body of Christ. And Paul's main point in what he says in these verses is given to us in verse 14. That's the main idea in verses 14 through 26 is what 14 says. The body does not consist of many members, but uh, the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. The body of Christ does not consist only in the gift of tongues. How do you know who's part of the body of Christ? Not do they speak in tongues, rather do they possess the Spirit and confess that He, Jesus Christ, is Lord. God has constructed the human body and the body of Christ of many different gifts, many different members who differ from one another, but who exist in unity because of God's work to create that unity. And there's three things that Paul says to us here in these verses. The first one is in verses 15 and 16. Here we see that the diversity of members does not mean any of them are any less a part of the body. Paul envisions one member looking at another member, for example, the foot, looking at the hand and concluding that because the foot is not a hand, the foot is not part of the body. That idea seems far-fetched. Would your foot ever look at your hand and say, there's no way I'm actually part of this human body because I'm not a hand like that hand is. That seems far-fetched to us, but that's exactly the point. That's never going to happen. Handness, being a hand, is not what makes a member part of the body. And so in the analogy, speaking in tongues is not what makes one part of the body of Christ and a possessor of the Spirit. Being part of the body means possessing the Spirit, and speaking in tongues is not how you would know that, because the Spirit gives a variety of gifts. There are people who possess other gifts, and they're still part of the body, because all the gifts come from one spirit. And thus, no specific gift evidences spirituality any more than any other gift. The second thing Paul has to say to us is in verse 17. Here we see that the entire body is not composed of a single type of member. If you have to be an eye to be part of the body, 
then you don't have a body. You have an eye, and a big one at that. Bodies have eyes and ears. They are diverse. There are a variety of members, Paul says. And so, in the analogy, no one gift dominates the church. Not everyone is an eye. Not every believer speaks in tongues. Tongues is a gift that only some believers possess. And it is the Spirit who determines which ones do and which ones don't. Some will never speak in tongues, and this is the Spirit's sovereign will. Some will never possess the gift of apostleship. Some will never become a teacher, and this is the Spirit's will. And you can't exclude those people simply because they're not eyes or ears. It's not earness or eyeness that makes one a member of the body. It is the Spirit who manifests Himself, not in a specific gift, because He is behind all of the gifts. Instead, it is the confession that Jesus is Lord that makes a man a truly spiritual person, a possessor of the Spirit, a fair dinkum member of the body of Christ. And the third thing Paul says to us here is in verse 18, God has arranged the members in the body as He chose. Look at verse 24. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it. This section centers on the fact that God is the one who constructs the body as He chooses. And if God is the one who has constructed the body, if it is the Spirit of God who has united us together into the body of Christ, if it is He who apportions the gifts, then no member can look down on any other member. The eye cannot exclude the hand as unnecessary in the body of Christ. The tongue speaker cannot despise those who haven't spoken in tongues. They are no less a spiritual person than the one who has spoken in tongues. Tongues makes no one more spiritual than any other gift. One then is a possessor of the Spirit, a true member of the body of Christ, not because he has spoken in tongues, but because he confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. And the very fact that the Spirit includes such confessors in the body and gives them gifts other than tongues is God's way upon bestowing honor upon all the other gifts. If God made everyone a tongue speaker, how important do you think that God thinks tongues is? But if He has created a body that has a diversity, a variety of gifts, and He is the one who has put it together that way, does that not bestow honor, God's own honor, upon every one of the gifts? Every one of the members? We must adjust ourselves to how God views every gift. When we see it on display in the construction of Christ's body, we come to understand that even the most dishonored parts are given a greater honor in the body of Christ by God Himself, by including them in the members, among the members of the body of Christ. God puts every member in the body, and that means that God thinks that every member is necessary, no matter what the other members might say. So what's Paul's point in this analogy of the human body and the body of Christ? What does this have to do with the question of spiritual things or spiritual matters? Paul applies all of this now in verses 27 through 31 to the question of genuine spirituality. 
And in light of all that we've seen so far, I think you can see how these verses sum up Paul's argument quite nicely. Now, verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to that is no. Because those are not the defining marks of genuine spirituality. Paul is making a profound point here. The Spirit constructs the body in a unity, but with a diversity of members because every part is needful. True spirituality is not found in a display of any one of the gifts. True spirituality is displayed in personal allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And by that faith that the Spirit generates, that man is united to Jesus Christ. He becomes a possessor of the Spirit, a bona fide member of Christ's body. And what explains then the diversity of gifts in the body is the Spirit's own work, which means then, Paul says, that every part that the Spirit adds is necessary. No part may be despised as less, because God has put the body together as He wills. Now, what does all of this mean for us? First of all, this flies in the face of modern-day Pentecostalism and speaking in tongues. Modern Pentecostalism, charismatic movement, makes speaking in tongues the defining mark of genuine spirituality. You aren't a full-fledged Christian, they say, unless you've spoken in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a second blessing that every Christian ought to seek. Christians are taught to pray for and to seek an experience of speaking in tongues. They're not satisfied until they have because Pentecostalism teaches that until you have had such an experience, you're not a genuine Christian. It's tongues that is taken as evidence that one has become a genuinely spiritual person. And Paul pushes back against this idea really hard in this passage. He asserts that confessing Jesus as Lord is the authentic test of genuine spirituality, not tongues. He reminds us that tongues is only one of the gifts and that the entire body is not an eye. All are not apostles, are they? One is not a member of Christ's body because he speaks in tongues. Instead, he's a member of Christ's body because he possesses the Spirit, and the Spirit leads men to confess Jesus as Lord. And Paul concludes verse 14 with very sobering words that it would be very important for us to take note of as a new church. You can read these beginning in verse 36 through 40 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, One who does not recognize these things that we've just considered... One who does not submit himself to these things, that the Spirit of God gives a variety of gifts and not just tongues. One who will not submit himself to these things should not be recognized, Paul says. His claim to authentic spiritual experiences is empty. You know, you can hear Pentecostals talking about all of these things that they've had happen to them. And Paul says, if they make speaking in tongues the defining mark of possessing the Spirit of God, do not listen to anything they say. They are not to be recognized because they do not understand genuine spirituality. 
I should interject here that both the New Testament and now 2,000 years of church history both teach us that tongues have ceased. They were a first century phenomenon and there's no reason that we ought to expect them today. The modern Pentecostal movement began only about 100 years ago and it began in defiance of the experience of Christians for the last 2,000 years. If speaking in tongues is what shows you are a genuine possessor of God's spirit, then the spirit of God has manifestly forsaken his people for the last 2,000 years. Life in the spirit does not consist in speaking of tongues or in any of the other experiences that Pentecostalism encourages people to seek. That is not what God had in mind when he promised in the new covenant to send the spirit upon us. And Paul makes nothing of tongues. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, the next chapter, that they will cease. So what then does it mean to live in the spirit? If it doesn't mean to pursue tongues as the authentic mark of spirituality, what does it mean to live in the Spirit? What is the significance of Christ's work to give us the Spirit? What results from God's promise? I will put my Spirit within you. What does it look like to walk a life in the Spirit? We'll look back at verse 21, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. We conclude here. The eye, Paul says, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Why not? Look at verse 18. Because God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That's what we saw in verses 4 through 11. There are a variety of gifts, but it is the same spirit behind them all, and he distributes the gifts as he wills. Look at verse 24. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Look at verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets. Let's think for a minute about what Paul's saying here. Imagine with me the local church at Corinth. You see them gathering together in somebody's home. They gather every Sunday. They gather regularly. That body that gathers is definable. The New Testament teaches clearly that churches had a definable and identifiable membership. In fact, the large number of the references in the New Testament to church membership appear in this book, the book of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian saints knew who was going to come in the door on Sunday morning. They knew who was part of that body of Christ. How many of them do you think there were? 50 maybe? 75? 100? On a given Sunday? Let's take 50. Okay? Say there were 50 members in Corinth. Why were there 50 and not 25? Answer, the Spirit of God. He composed the body and added the 50 that he wished. Why do each one of those 50 members possess the variety of gifts that they do? Answer, why are some eyes, some ears, and some feet? Why do not all speak in tongues? The Spirit of God. He has composed the body as he chose. It's his will. He has apportioned the gifts as he chooses. And from this, we need to understand, first of all, that the body that gathers regularly and definably every Lord's Day exists in the shape that it does with the members who are a part of it because it is the will of God that it be so. Every member is there by God's appointment. 
God puts the body together as He wills. The Spirit of God creates the body just as He chooses. He adds the members. He gifts them as He will. And they gather every Sunday. Why? Why does He gather them together into one body? Why does the new covenant create a people? Why are there local churches? Why do they exist? What are these things called the body of Christ with members? Here's the first answer to that question. Local churches exist because the members need one another. It's why God put the body together. The very fact that God put them all together in the body shows that. Every member of a local church is necessary, needful. No one can regard himself as unnecessary. And this means three things, or actually four. The first thing this means is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to join one of these things. You cannot exist on your own apart from the body of Christ. The new covenant joins believers together and says you can't exist as a Christian on your own. You need other members around you. That's the first thing this means. The second thing this means is we need to recognize that it is those members that are needful to my spiritual health and vitality. It's a mistake to look at other Christians outside this local church and say, I need them more than I need these ones. To seek spiritual fellowship and community with other believers while the body to which you belong is meeting elsewhere does not adequately account for the fact that the Spirit puts the body together as He wills. You may not feel you experience the same fellowship with the saints in your local church as maybe you do with friends from another state or across the world. But it is the Spirit of God who puts you together with them in that local church. And that very act of the Spirit of God means you must bestow upon those other members of your local church. You must bestow upon them the honor that they are the ones the Spirit of God thought were needful for your growth in Christ-likeness. So when we gather as saints, we gather in local churches whose members are there by the work of God's Holy Spirit. And that means the Spirit thought that every one of them was needful to your spiritual growth. And this means two additional things for us. The third thing that this chapter has to say to us is this. Every member of Christ's body is a spiritual consumer. None of us can say we do not need the other members of the body. None of us can say I do not need other Christians to follow Jesus Christ. No Christian can say that he exists just fine as a Christian apart from other Christians. The very shape of our salvation, we receive salvation by union with Christ, by the Spirit. The very shape of our salvation that joins us to Christ for salvation, by its very nature, is union with other Christians. You cannot be a member of the body of Christ and not be joined to other Christians. You cannot receive salvation apart from being joined to the body of Christ. It is by becoming a member of His body that we are saved, and that means we now are a member of His body. How does Christ minister to the members of His body? 
Answer, through the other members of the body. How does the Spirit meet our needs? Answer, he gives other saints, unites us to them in the local church, and tells us, submit to those saints. You need them. I've given them gifts for your benefit. Christianity is not a religion that's just between you and God. Christianity is a religion that puts God's Spirit within you, uniting you to the other members of the body of Christ in a local church because you need every one of those members, all of them. Whoever the Spirit puts alongside of you in your church, you need them. The very shape of your salvation teaches you to look outside of yourself for your Christianity, outside of yourself for the righteousness you need, and outside of yourself for the Christian life you must live. Christianity is a team sport. It is played alongside other Christians. You cannot play the game of Christianity uh, by yourself without other Christians. It is impossible. Your Christianity will not be real Christianity if you do. The gathering of the church is far more than simply a more efficient means of delivering sermons. You know, it's better if the pastor delivers it all to us once on Sunday morning than individually in our homes throughout the week. That's why we gather, right? It isn't like a petrol station where you go and put in your tithe and get your spiritual fuel tank filled up for the week. It's a place where you gather with other spiritual people whose influence and relationship you need. Life in the Spirit is a life of need. Need for the Spirit's work in me through other Spirit-filled and Spirit-gifted members of the body of Christ. You simply were not made to survive and grow with just your Bible. God made you to be a consumer of the Spirit's ministry in the body of Christ. And the very shape of our salvation demands that we understand the Christian life, life in the Spirit, in this way. But we must understand that this relationship of need goes both ways. You need them, and they need you. You have something to offer as a possessor of God's Holy Spirit. You have something to give, something the Spirit of God knows they need and that He has prepared you to provide for them. And that means that every member of the body of Christ is both a spiritual consumer and a spiritual producer. The Spirit puts Christians together in the body of Christ and He gives them a variety of gifts. No member can consider His gift not needful to the body. No member of Christ's body can sit back and just receive. He has been put in the body and the very fact that God included Him in the body with His particular gift bestows greater honor upon Him and His gift. God's actions to include Him in to include him is God's way of saying to all of the rest of us, this gift is something the body cannot get along without. So how many ministers are there in the body of Christ then? The answer is, as many members as there are. Every part is needful. No member and his gift are unnecessary. If you're ever tempted to look at the little old lady who sits in the back row with her walker and cane, and can barely hear you, but whom God has added to this body, if you're ever tempted to look at her and think, we don't really need her, she needs us. Our minds have got to change at that point. We must bestow upon her the honor that God did in including her. You need her. She needs you. 
If that were not the case, God wouldn't have put her here in the local church. Don't ever look at a pastor and think, I have nothing to contribute to his walk with God. He may be ahead of you in terms of spiritual maturity, and he should be, but God put you in the body alongside of him. He needs you and your ministry to him every Sunday just as surely as you need him and his ministry to you every Sunday from the pulpit. Pastors must never consider themselves to be above this need either. They are not super Christians who are above the need for other members in the body of Christ. They must submit themselves to other members of the body of Christ for their ministry to them. Pastors must bestow honor upon other members by humbling themselves to receive the ministry of the other members of the body of Christ to themselves. And so in every local church, the Spirit constructs the body as He wills. Every member of the church must submit himself to the implications of the Spirit's work to add him to the body of Christ. It means acknowledging and honoring the weakest among us. We must count them needful to our spiritual health and life and growth. They are needful to me, and I am needful to them. So be there every Sunday. Be here every Sunday. Get together during the week. It's the way the body works. And that's one reason that the body gathers regularly, because every member is needed. The Spirit of God constructs every local church as He wills, and if you are ever tempted to think that you will grow up into Christ just fine at 6 a.m. in the morning, hunched over your Bible in the soft glow of a reading lamp, or on Sunday evenings listening to a YouTube preacher, think again. That is not the shape of the Christian life. A Christian who lives alone is a stunted Christian. The very evidence of this is that he doesn't even understand his Bible enough to seek out other believers to help him grow. Life in the Spirit is life with the Spirit's words, but it is also life with the Spirit's people. He adds whom he wills, and in that he tells you that you are supposed to be a spiritual consumer, and you are supposed to be a spiritual producer. And so we must submit ourselves to the will of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for giving us your precious Holy Spirit and for the way that he has prepared each of us to live as members of the body of Christ. And I pray that as we focus upon that in our observance now of the Lord's Supper, that you would grant us greater understanding of the place of the work of Jesus Christ to create this body and to preserve it by the work of every member. And we ask these things in Christ's name.